everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Dan Cannon, who's a professor at the Brandeis School of Law. And he also has a pretty interesting background uh, being involved in the Obergefell case and uh, is the author of a book that just came out in the last month, Pleading Out. Welcome to our show. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So um, interested uh, in learning a little bit about your background and how you came uh, into law and also how you came to the Obergefell case. Yeah, well, I had the uh, typical sort of career path of um, high school dropout uh, to law professor you know, probably the kind of story that you hear a lot. Um, so, you know, I started, I started life as a musician. I'm actually on career number three right now. Uh, but uh, I, I started life as a musician and um, um, grew up in Southern Indiana, which is where I live now. And uh, dropped out of high school when I was a junior and uh, spent a lot of time as a musician all over the country. And um was teaching guitar and then decided I wanted to go back to school. I got my GED, uh, went to, went to college for, uh, religious studies and modern languages. And when you get a degree like that and you care about stuff too, on top of that, you know, you're sort of like, uh, what do I do with myself? I know I'll, I'll hit the big career default button and go to law school. Um, and so that's what I did and, uh, found that I, I really liked, uh, didn't really like law school that much, but I, but I actually liked, um, representing people like, and and when I went to school, I was thinking that, well, there's no way I'm ever going to practice law. I'm probably just going to go to work at some nonprofit, you know, organization or think tank or something like that. Uh, But I ended up uh, practicing civil rights law with trial lawyers and doing employment discrimination and doing cop cases and jail cases and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I loved it. And so that's where I stayed. Um, And there are not, you know, at least in those days, um, in my part of the world, there, there are just not a lot of people that identify as civil rights lawyers. Um, and I was one of them. And so I was, I was lucky enough to have the marriage cases that were filed in Kentucky um, sort of fall into my lap um, as, as a result of, you know, self-branding as a civil rights lawyer. Um, so I got very lucky with that. And um, we, were, we, were, we were quite lucky in getting that case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, that's just making a very long story, um, very, very short. Yeah, no, um, you know, it's interesting because I actually talked to a lot of people um, that, you know, go into law after they were formerly incarcerated 
Um, and then, you know, because they've worked on either getting themselves out or, or something, they get interested in the law and then they go back to school. Um, kind of interesting going from, uh, you know, teaching guitar uh, to, to law school. Um, so, it is so an unorthodox is- career path. I, you know, if anybody, any high school students are out there listening, uh, your path to being a lawyer or a law professor is probably not through dropping out of high school. So uh, do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Um, so, you know, um, so how, well, let me read one of your tweets from, I guess it was uh, this past fall, because uh, it was really interesting. Um, you said, um, I was one of the lawyers who won the Obergefell um, at, at SCOTUS and litigated the Kim Davis case in Kentucky. Back when Trump was elected, I said same-sex uh, couples didn't have uh, to be worried about their marriages. And then uh, you said you were wrong and that you grossly estimated the effect of uh, Trumpism on lower courts. So kind of walk us through, I mean, where are we now with all this stuff uh, and why are you so concerned? So I think you can, the, the best way to explain it is by looking at what's happening with Roe right now. Um, so you have, you know, a state like Texas that decides it's going to pass some, you know, ridiculous um, restrictions on abor- abortion that have been, you know, struck down 10 million times. And <clears throat> this time, time number 10 million and one, you know, they have a court that says, actually, we're just going to let those stay in place and see what happens. And then it goes up to the circuit court and lo and behold, the circuit court says, well, we're just going to let it stay in place and see what happens. Then it goes up to the United States Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's like, well, we're just not going to do anything. And you're going to let this law go into effect and we'll deal with it later. And there's a lot of power, as it turns out, in 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 doing nothing. You know, Um, we've sort of been relying on the courts to to bail us out of the worst of the worst of red state legislation for long enough now that um, there's not really a contingent plan for what to do when they don't anymore. I mean, there's, you know, there's not a lot to fall back on. And it's not hard to imagine a scenario like that happening with marriage. When you think about what happened in the Kim Davis case, you know, the Kim Davis case was kind of the thing that if you if your listeners will remember, that's the, the clerk in Kentucky that refused to issue marriage licenses after the Obergefell decision because, you know, she 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 didn't believe in it. You know, essentially it violated the the tenets of her personal faith. So everybody in her county was going to suffer. And you know, people sort of laughed at that at the time. That's that's you know, legally speaking, that's ridiculous. And that's what the courts said all the way up at that time in 2015. They're like, no, you can't do that. You can't create this individual little fiefdom in your county where you just don't give out marriage licenses. That's not the way it works. Um, and we sort of took it for granted that that was going to be the outcome. Well, imagine if the opposite had happened. Imagine if the courts had said, you know, um, it's OK for you to do that or we're just not going to we're not going to deal with it. We're going to kick that down the line and maybe we'll deal with it in a year or two. But we're not going to issue an injunction and we're not going to stop you from doing what you're doing right now. Um, you know, and, and, and say that the Supreme Court never dealt with that. Well, effectively, then there would be no more marriage in Kim Davis's county. Right. Um, and it's not hard to imagine, 
you know, a state like Texas or Kentucky or Indiana saying, you know, Texas is already doing this to an extent saying, well, we have our law and we don't really care what the federal courts say for one thing. Um, and we're just going to, you know, we're going to pass something else that's terrible. We're going to pass something that says, you know, um, all of the same sex marriages that were formed in Texas are now um, invalid. You know, they're null and void. And we're not going to, we're simply not going to recognize them anymore. And that's what the state of Texas through, you know, whatever, uh, uh, either the legislative branch or the executive branch, they decide to do that. And then the courts say, well, you know, we don't see anything particularly unconstitutional here, so we're not going to stop them from doing that. And, you know, maybe we'll rule on this later or maybe not. And then it goes up to the Court of Appeals and it goes up to the Supreme Court and they do nothing. And so effectively, you have no more marriage in the state of Texas, right? No more same-sex marriage, just like you have essentially no more abortion now. Not hard to imagine. It was very difficult to imagine that, I think, six years ago. You know, um, imagining the the unringing of the bell of someone's individual rights. That's a difficult thing for us to do, I think, um, as Americans, but we're seeing it happen right now in, in real time. And so I think it is a very real danger. And, and, you know, the blueprint is already there for, you know, not only for same-sex marriage, but for birth control, but for, you know, all these other different individual liberties that we've taken for granted for so long, you know, who's going to protect us? Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point. And where it seems like we're going is that, you know, this is going to become a really bifurcated uh, country where you're going to have certain rights that are enforced in blue states that are not enforced in red states. Um, I mean, isn't that where it, it, it's really heading at this point? Sure. I, I mean, I've got um, I, I'm very close to the, the pro-choice movement here in this part of the country, and it is sort of widely accepted among the, the folks that are um, active in that community that we're going to have to figure out uh, ways to drive lots and lots of people over to Illinois if they want reproductive health care. You know, um, that's that's going to be what we have to do. And, and you know, I, I, I assume that the Indiana legislature, that the Kentucky legislature, you know, that these other red state legislatures are going to try to criminalize that. Um, so yeah, we're, we're headed for dark times, I think. Um, and, you know, what we're kind of, you know, I was just reading a story uh, this morning um, on kind of the Supreme Court nomination, uh, you know, and, and the comments by the kind of three moderate, I don't know if I like that term for them, uh, uh, Republicans that, that are gonna vote for Jackson are very concerning because, uh, and, and I think they're absolutely correct that, that where we're headed with this is that if a president does not have a Senate, which um, will be the case in, uh, you know, probably January, um, that that is of the same party, um, they won't be able to get through any uh, judicial appointments anymore. Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of the wave of the future that um, and both sides are going to do it for sure. But that's not exactly how this thing was supposed to work. Well, and it's been so lopsided so far. I mean, we're in such a deep, dark hole with the judiciary as it is. Because I think that, you know, progressives 
um, didn't start paying attention to the judiciary in any sort of meaningful way. And for, for decades after conservatives figured out, well, let's stack the court full of people that, you know, are, are um, you know, very pro-capital and very anti-individual liberty. And, and that's what we've got now. You know, you need to look no farther than, than Katanji Brown Jackson. I mean, if you, you know, look at her background and it is so totally out of place and so totally unique for, you know, compared to anybody who's ever been on that court. I think of the folks that are on the, the, the Supreme Court right now, you know, I don't think anyone has ever actually rep- represented a human being in court, let alone been a public defender. And if you look at, you know, what we've got on the federal judiciary overall, and this is true for the Democratic appointees too, that vir- virtually none of them have the kind of background that uh, Katanji Brown Jackson has. You know, nobody's been a public defender. Nobody's represented people. Certainly nobody's represented plaintiffs in civil rights cases, you know, that kind of thing. You've got people that went straight from, you know, top tier law schools to clerkships to being on the bench themselves, right? Sometimes they did a stint at the biggest law firms in the world, you know, representing oil and gas companies, that kind of thing. And, and I mean, you know, when, if that is the only kind of person that you're putting on the, the federal bench, for all presidents for decades and decades now, I mean, you're going to, you're, you're, you're going to reap the, uh, you're going to reap what you sow, I suppose. You know, it's, it's, it's the outcome I think for our courts has been very, very bad. So, I mean, is there a remedy to this other than win a lot of elections? Uh, well, even winning a lot of elections is not going to necessarily do it now. You know, um, if 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 we took over, you know, if Democrats got the Senate, uh, a substantial majority on the Senate and in the House and kept the presidency by some miracle, you know, over the next um, couple of years, then you'd still have to contend with, um, you know, many, many terrible judges, <laughs> Uh, just, you know, the sort of the sort of worst judges that you can possibly imagine ever being put on the, the bench um, that are that are still in the federal courts that, you know, are there for life and aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and so, you know, let's say that you have with the situation that we have now, let's say that you have, you know, um, a Democratic sweep of the legislature. And by some miracle, you get you know, um, a Congress that wants to, to pass Medicare for all and put Medicare for all in place. Well, the courts are so swamped with, with conservative, with reactionaries, um, that you'll never get it to, to stick. You know, it'll be declared unconstitutional within the week. Uh, so we're, I mean, you know, again, it, it, it's, uh, we're in quite a predicament. And as but to your question is, how do you, out. how do you change it? No, I, you know, I don't, I don't see, I don't see a way out that's pleasant. I don't see a way out from the top down. Certainly not. You know, I don't, I don't think that you, you change this just by, you know, showing up and voting. It's going to require more citizen participation than that. Um, and the only good things that ever, and this is, this is part of what I write about in the book. I mean, the only good things that have ever really happened to bring about lasting change in American society have happened from the, the bottom up, you know, um, and, and it, it's going to have to happen that way. It's going to have to be the result of grassroots and popular movement. And, uh, you know, part of what I and my colleagues have been, uh, you know, really involved in is trying to figure out what, what role do lawyers really have in this? 
um, if we can't do what we're sort of accustomed to doing, and that's, you know, uh, filing lawsuits and hopefully winning them and, you know, making change to the courts, we have to figure out other ways to make change. So let's shift gears a little bit um, to uh, your book, uh, Pleading Out. Um, so what inspired you to write it? Well, so I've been representing uh, incarcerated people for the last 15 years. Um, and I spent a lot of time in prisons and a lot of time talking to people and hearing their stories uh, and, and have sort of come to um, be familiar with the story of somebody that's locked up for a really long time, uh, maybe for something they didn't do, uh, maybe for something that you know, um, was radically different than what they were charged with in the first place. But almost none of them had any idea what was happening to them throughout the criminal process. Um, you know, and, and many of them are there as the result of a guilty plea. And so I wanted to dig into that a little bit more and uh, sort of explore how and why that was happening. And at the same time, you know, I'm interested in the, the sort of monstrous criminal justice outcomes that we have in the United States and why we seem to be so much worse off than most of the rest of the world. So we lock up more people, way more people than any place else in the world. We lock them up for longer. We lock them up for more things. Uh, we arrest more people and so on. Um, even, even when compared to other systems that um, are very similar to ours, like Britain and Canada and Australia. Um, and I wanted to sort of get to the bottom of that and figure out, you know, why are our outcomes so much worse? And does it have anything to do with the fact that our, our rates of guilty pleas are, are very different from any place else in the world? Right now, 97% um, and rising of our criminal cases are resolved via a guilty plea. And the vast majority of those um, resolve as a result of some kind of plea bargain where the prosecutor's got all these carrots and all these sticks, and they're, they're going to use them to get a conviction for something. Um, well, that doesn't happen in the rest of the world. Uh, you know, the, the, I think the, uh, any other country, there's no other country that tops out over 80%. Um, so this 97% is a big deal. And I wanted to, to dig into how, what that has to do with our criminal justice outcomes. Um, and it turns out that it's it's a lot. I mean, you can't get all these convictions um, rammed through a system without a means to do that very quickly. Um, and that's what the plea bargain is. I mean, it's it's really is as simple as that. But the history of it is more complicated and, and certainly more interesting. Um, but I wanted to, to dig into some of those issues and also to see if there's anything that ordinary people can do to transform the criminal justice system, because it's just like we were talking about with the federal judiciary. You know, it's top down change at this point in American history is is kind of this fanciful thing. Um, but there are people who are really working on the ground at the grassroots level to build coalitions, to uh, change the way that the public thinks about criminal justice issues, and they're doing it very successfully. So I wanted to sort of tear apart what they were doing and, and create a blueprint to see if we could um, make system-wide change at the grassroots level. So, you know, from your perspective, what is the cause of this vast increase in plea bargaining? And, um, you know, I've read a number of books have come out on this topic in recent years. And so 
you know, it's a fairly recent phenomenon that it's gotten up to 97%. What's kind of changed? Well, so it's not so recent. It depends on, you know, it, it continues to rise. But I mean, if you look at the example of Massachusetts, right, and, and this is, I don't know how far back you want to go into this. Um, and uh, it's the danger that you have with any law professors, I'm sure you know, is you get us talking and we won't stop. So just do break in anytime I, I get super boring. But you go back to the to 1830s in Massachusetts, which was really when and where we think plea bargaining began. Now, in the 1830s, this was a sort of secretive thing. You know, it wasn't really talked about when it happened. And in fact, it was considered illegal. Uh, there was there uh, there was a prosecutor in 1840, I think as late as 1840, who was himself prosecuted for making deals with defendants. That was the thing that you didn't do at the time. He beat the charges, but he got prosecuted for that. And what's remarkable about this is that in the 1830s, no plea bargaining. That's when we see the first few plea bargains come out, come around in Boston. But by the 1850s, you've got a 50 percent plea bargain rate. Right. You know, basically 50 percent of all criminal cases are being resolved with guilty pleas. By the 1880s, it's 90 percent, almost 90 percent. <clears throat> and, you know, that sort of spread to the rest of the country, um, especially after prohibition, when you've got the federal government getting more involved in criminal law enforcement. You've got all these mechanisms and all these new laws um, and, and mechanisms to enforce those laws. And so you have all these new criminals that need to get convicted. And in fact, you know, if you look at Herbert Hoover's inaugural address, it's all about the criminal justice system and expediency. And it's like due process is fine, but we really need to, to rush these convictions through. There's not just the bootleggers, but it's the people who assist the bootleggers and the people who assist the people who assist the bootleggers. Like everybody's a criminal and we have all these new criminals and we need to convict them all and we need to do it quick. And that principle of expediency um, took off and it's stuck with us ever since, you know, and, and that's where you start to see the numbers of, of plea bargain cases skyrocket um, all over the country, not just in New England, but everywhere. And the federal prison population triples during prohibition and so on and so forth. Well, this is still, and part of the reason I wrote the book is to get a public conversation started about this again because there really hasn't been one for about 50 years. You know, this was, this was still a, a controversial topic among, you know, lawyers in the courthouse um, up until the 1970s. And then in the 1970s, you have this case, because people weren't really sure that they wanted to turn the, the system over completely to just this sort of like backroom bargaining process, right? You know, the, the, the death of the jury trial was sort of this thing that people were not really sure, like judges were not really sure they wanted to see that go. Um, and it turns out, you know, our apprehension was, was justified. But uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, you've got this case called Borden-Kircher versus Hayes. And it's not a case that we teach very much uh, in the law schools, but I, I really think that it is a turning point in American history. And what happens in that case is right down the road from me in Lexington, Kentucky, you've got this guy, Paul Hayes, who's 29 years old. He's a horse transporter. And he's you know, standing in line at the grocery store and he writes a bad check. Just make it a, a long story short. He writes a bad check for $88.30. And they catch him and he gets prosecuted for it. The prosecutor comes to him and says, listen, I see that you've been in trouble with the law here before. 
Um, and so what you're going to do is you're going to do five years in prison for this $88 check. And Paul Hayes is like, I don't want to do five years in prison for that $88 check. That seems like a whole lot to do. I've got a job and a family and everything else. I don't want to do it. Prosecutor says, okay, well, if you're not going to take the five years, and his words are, if you make me go through the inconvenience of trial, well, I'm going to hit you with the habitual offender statute, and that carries a mandatory penalty of life in prison. And Paul Hayes says, well, okay, I'm going to take my chances with the jury. And we go to a jury trial, he gets convicted and is sentenced to life in prison for an $88.30 check. Um, and at the time, you know, I talked to, I talked to one of the lawyers that represented Paul Hayes at uh, the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, he said that he got letters from prosecutors all over the country that said, we would never, that is outrageous that you would threaten somebody with life, that you would, you, you would slap them with, with uh, life in prison, you know, these higher charges because they wanted to go to trial. That's just, that's just simply beyond the pale. And we would never do that. I don't know if those prosecutors were telling the truth then, um, but it is the way we do things now because the Supreme Court sort of, you know, um, blessed it. You know, this case goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, well, you know, the prosecutor's job is to uh, persuade somebody to give up their right to trial. And Mr. Hayes wasn't persuaded. So tough luck. You gamble with your life and lost. And that's the way it's been pretty much unquestioned for the last 50 years. You know, we turn out lawyers here at the law school that go into criminal justice and expect that, you know, 90, more than 90 percent of their clients are, are going to plead guilty to something. doesn't matter what it is. Right. Um, and that's just that's for two generations of lawyers. Now we've accepted that as the way it is and something that this in fact, something that the system can't do without. If we didn't have all these plea bargains, the system would come crashing to a halt. So let me jump in here, because what you're describing is what's come to be known as the trial penalty, uh, which is kind of, um, you know, looking at, OK, um, here is your offer. If you don't take this offer, your exposure is 20 years, or in the case you just mentioned, life. And so, you know, from a rational perspective, uh, you know, most people are not going to risk, you know, a huge sentence if they can uh, assure themselves of being out in a relatively short period of time. Now, one of the things that I argue um and is that i am not a believer in the jury system um and the reason i'm not a believer in the jury system is i believe that we we cover up the jury system because the vast majority of cases that go to trial even are are fairly simple you know who did it you know what they did uh the evidence is clear and and the actual number of cases uh, that are difficult to figure out are, are a small number. And I but I believe, and I think there's data that could back me up on this. But if you actually look at those tough cases, the jury gets it wrong half the time, maybe even more. And so that's a big reason as to why nobody wants to take a risk, uh, because if you believe that, you know. We know from, you know, the National Registry of Exonerations that something like 20% of all wrongful convictions were plea bargains. 
uh, why would you plead if you didn't do it? Well, only if you don't believe that the jury's going to believe you. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, my thoughts are, you know, this is a sort of a, a chicken or egg kind of question, I think, you know, um, we've never really tried citizen juries in the United States, right? You know, not, okay, so think about the timeline that I laid out in Massachusetts. By 1880, 88%, you know, almost 90% of all cases resolved via guilty plea, right? A jury never sees that ever. And there was this deliberate effort during that time to, rem to take power away from juries, right? So you have, you know, uh, prior to that time, prior to the 1850s, I think, in Massachusetts, you've got juries that are still deciding the law, right? You know, not just whether or not the car ran the red light, but whether it should be illegal to run a red light at all. Well, they took that power away from juries in the 1850s. And as you see more uh, working class people getting into jury service as a result of universal white male suffrage right around the same time, you start to see um, this shift away from the jury trial. So you get to 1880, you've got almost no jury trials in Massachusetts, and women could not sit on juries in Massachusetts until 1950. So 70 years later, you know, we never even tried women on a jury, right? Let alone people of color who are still systematically excluded. <clears throat> There's some data in the book, um, the study out of Texas, I think it is where they look at um, who shows up for jury duty. You know, so you have some, I mean, it's, this is an intractable problem and it's a cultural problem. It's just, you know, um, something that's going to be very, very difficult to dig out of. But, you know, who's showing up for jury duty and who's sitting on juries? Well, they don't look anything like the people who are actually accused of crimes, you know, and, and part of that is because we simply don't try any cases. Like there's not, you know, if you only have a couple of trials a year in a certain county, well, you know, judges are going to be pretty lax about who they let off of jury service. So if somebody says, well, I got a doctor's appointment, or I simply can't afford to do two weeks of jury duty, or I got to go home and water the hamster, or, you know, I, I, I've hurt my toe and I can't, you know, whatever it is, judges are going to let people out of jury duty by and large. So, what juries look like now as ever is upper middle class white people. That's pretty much it. Um, and if you look at the studies out of Texas, it, you know, only 20% of the people that are called to show up for jury duty in the first place even show up. So you're whittling down that 20% into you know, whoever is acceptable to the lawyers to sit in the jury box. And why? Because we have so few trials, right? You know, if we had more trials, there would certainly be a demand for more jurors. But what you have is a situation in which, and I agree that the, you know, the jury is an unpredictable thing, that it's, you know, you'd probably, in a, in a high stakes case, you'd certainly rather, uh, you know, have a sure thing than to take your chances with life imprisonment or something like that. Um, and I'm not suggesting in the book that we go to all jury trials or even mostly jury trials. But I am suggesting that we up the number of them. Number one, because it hasn't really been tried, you know, before ever in American history. And number two, um, because you, you, you've got without the jury trial, <clears throat> you really have removed the primary um, means of civic participation for uh, most American people. Right. Like that is the way that 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 we as citizens are the most powerful is is when we sit on a jury. I mean, that's the most power that you can have for most of us in American society. 
Um, and we've taken that power away from people. And worse than that, we've completely removed the community from the entire process of criminal justice. Because when do we ever interact with the criminal justice system? I mean, unless you're on the receiving end or you're a lawyer who's used to the way this works, you don't have any dealings with the criminal justice system. You don't see the inside of a courthouse. You don't know what's going on. And so people are not engaged with criminal justice in their own communities, which is really rather a unique thing in human history. Yeah, and I think you make a lot of good points. Um, you know, one interesting thing that uh, I know uh, San Francisco is experimenting with is they just passed a pilot program uh, where they're going to pay their jurors a lot more, um, at least the low income jurors, uh, like $100 a day instead of, you know, the $20 that they were giving them uh, to see if they can get more people to want to serve. Um, you know, it sounds like um, from your perspective, um, one of the solutions may be just have more jury trials and that'll force them uh, to pick from a broader pool. Um, you know, uh, so maybe your thoughts on that? I think so. And I think that, you know, in any community, if you you know, start, start taking a harder line on who's actually, you know, who must show up for jury duty, then there, that is going to create popular demand to have jurors make more than, you know, 12 bucks a day or whatever they make down the street here in Louisville. I think it's still $12 a day. I mean, that really is exclusive of the working classes, you know, almost entirely, right? You know, and judges who are, are elected, not appointed, don't want to be um, don't want to be hard asses about, you know, working class people who show up and they say, well, I've, I've, I've got to work. I've got to eat. You know, it's like, no, sorry, you're going to sit on this two week, you know, murder trial anyway. Um, I don't I don't know too many judges who would do that if they're forced to because of more jury trials. I think that does create more, you know, um, popular demand to do something about the miserable way that we treat jurors. Um, so. Kind of your takeaways in terms of uh, the solutions to um, this pleading problem. Well, the solutions are not easy, <clears throat> and what I've Take tried to down. do, in the book, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, um, the good news is that you know whether or not to go to trial is is a decision that even if a defendant doesn't know it, uh, and many of them don't, but but um, even if they don't know it, it is a decision that that lies with the accused. Right. Um, and it's one of the few things that they can control. So so let's back out of that and think about, you know, what happens to the system if we increase the number of jury trials by even 10 percent. Um, right now, sitting at 97 percent, let's take it back to 87 percent, 85 percent, something like that. Well, that's going to double the amount of resources required. Um, it's going to double, you know, basically um, uh, more than double um, what what uh, the time required from prosecutors and everybody else. And just by that 10 percent swing, you create a system wide effect that I think, um, you know, the conventional wisdom for forever has been that crashes the system. I don't think so. I think. If you look at uh, historically what's happened with jurisdictions that have experimented with that and at the rest of the world, um, the system doesn't crash. It becomes more intelligent. So let's look at what happened in Alaska. In the 1970s, they tried this. They had a, 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 um, an attorney general come in 
and say, we're going to shut down the whole system of plea bargaining and we're only going to do it under limited circumstances. Well, what happened in Alaska was the prosecutor's rate of rejection, uh, the cases that they rejected, they didn't want to prosecute at all, went from 4% to 44%, like basically overnight, because they knew they were going to have to try all these cases and some of them were going to be dogs. Um, and so they stopped prosecuting the bad cases. And what that did was to put pressure on law enforcement to be more careful. Right now, you know, of the 10 million arrests made in the United States every year, you pretty much know that all of those arrests, if you're a cop, you, you know that most of those arrests are going to end in, in conviction of some kind. Um, but what Alaska, what happened in Alaska was that that power was taken away from police officers and their behavior was put under a microscope a little bit more. And they knew they would have to testify. They'd have to present evidence. They'd have to show the goods if they wanted to get these cases actually prosecuted. So it did put prosecutors and police at loggerheads um, a little bit, which I would argue is a good thing, uh, but it, it, because it made police more careful in their investigations. And you see that happen uh, to a lesser extent, I think, but, but you did see it happen in New Orleans as well when you had Harry Connick Sr. come into the prosecutor spot in the 1970s and say, well, we're going to greatly restrict the uh, number of plea bargains that we take. So, you know, there is precedent for that. Um, that it makes prosecutors more selective and it makes law enforcement more careful just by a little bit of a swing uh, in the number of jury trials that you do. Um, and so I think that you know, if we were aiming for you know, just an increase in 10% in jury trials, if, if public defenders offices aimed for that, if elected prosecutors aimed for it, if the general public you know, got the idea that, well, we do have a right to trial and we can take some of these cases to trial and we don't necessarily have to plead every single case. Um, I think you can swing 10%. It doesn't really matter what kind of trials they are, I don't think. Uh, but I think you could swing a 10% change and then hopefully um, have system-wide repercussions. Well, very interesting. Uh, the book is called Pleading Out. Um, Dan Cannon is the author. Uh, he's been talking with us today. Uh, appreciate uh, you taking uh, time out from your day uh, to, to discuss these interesting, albeit depressing issues. <laughs> Most of the interesting issues end up being depressing if you talk about them for long enough. But uh, yeah, but, I, uh, I'm afraid so. But the book uh, ends on a hopeful note. I will say that it's not all doom and gloom. Um, and I hope it's not super boring. So uh, it, you'll end up in a hopeful place, uh, I think. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.